0: John 20:19 You know it's fun when you go through a gospel. Well, I guess I get to stop there. It's fun when you go through a gospel. When you go through and you get to see all the resurrection things because often sometime sometimes in our liturgical calendar you know we're coming up to Easter, we'll just kind of talk about Jesus resurrection during Easter and then the other 51 weeks we kind of forget about it. Uh, it's nice to go through and see how much there is in the actual gospels. Uh we'll obviously talk about on Easter too, but uh, check your calendars. We're going to do two services on Easter in case you, and we'll do a Monday-Thursday service that will be on Thursday. Hence the name. So we're at, uh, remember last week we talked about uh, and read through those texts where Jesus uh, uh, was not in the tomb. That's the first part of John 20. Uh, we find an empty tomb, evidence for the resurrection Uh But he does actually appear to Mary Magdalene, which is really the first person he appears to. Uh, When we look through here, we're going to get a few more appearances. Uh, John doesn't have them all. Uh, They're in other places. So let's start in verse 19 and get a few verses going here. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Jesus appears to them. Night between or behind locked doors. Here, it's the same. It's the first day. This is uh, we've already had four times if you piece this together from the gospels. We're actually going to look at Luke on uh, Easter week, but the first one we already talked about last week. This was in the morning, actually before the sun had actually come up, that he appeared to Mary Magdalene. We know there were other women with her that he appeared to also. Uh, Soon after that, we find that out in Matthew 28. So that's the second one. We also know that he he appeared in the afternoon to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we're going to hit that text on Easter. And then we know also before this meeting with the 11, he appeared to Peter alone. Now, we don't have this stated in detail uh, but it's implied, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 15, if you go First Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, it has kind of this little uh, statement of faith about who Jesus is. And in there, it has a sequence of some of these resurrection appearances. And it says that he appeared to Cephas, which is the Aramaic uh, name for Peter, and then the disciples. So we know this happened before. We also know this from the walk to Emmaus scripture, Because they come in and they see him and they say he's already appeared to Peter and he also now appeared to us. We don't know when this was. It's kind of odd. You look at that. You're like maybe that you would want put more in here, but it's not in there. Uh, Why? I don't know. We apparently don't need it. We we have enough uh, with what we have here. So Jesus comes and appears to them, and you can do what you want with this. I mean, I think most people would assume that he kind of appeared out of nowhere, as we might say. we don't know if that's an attribute of a resurrected body or, you know, because it is Jesus. I mean, I don't know. I think about, maybe you do too, about what will we be like in the new heaven and the new earth. All who believe in him, you know, sin will be gone. We'll get what Paul calls spiritual bodies. And I don't know if you can just pop in on somebody like that. Uh, that might just be a Jesus thing. Uh, uh, we're not really given a lot other than just trust that it'll be wonderful. You can read. Well, First Corinthians 15, but you can read Revolution 21. It's kind nice, uh, of nice what, of what we look forward to. But he comes to them and he gives them this normal greeting. Um, it's something you'll see in Jewish uh, circles even today. Shalom aleichim. Uh It's one that he probably had said to them a number of times. So I think what we're seeing this, the appropriate response back is always, alakim shalom, and we had to do this when we were, it's been 20 years ago I was in Israel, but this is this is what you were supposed to say to someone. It's a very nice greeting to say. Uh, so I think he, he's trying to alleviate their fears. He's trying to have them understand that this is really him. There may be a little bit, remember last week, Mary is distraught, crying, Jesus says to her, who you're you know, who are you seeking? And she doesn't know it's him. And then he says, Mary. Remember that? And then we think, more than likely from the text, that she, he had said that to her a lot. And when he said that, oh, that's this is Jesus. And I wonder if this is what's going on here. You know, if he, he said Shalom aleichem, and they're like, oh, this really is him. Might be what 's going on here uh, we 're not sure, but this is a formal greeting that you see. you see it way back in the Old Testament. The tradition goes God himself even uses it it 's the idea of a way it the shalom word we we we, we have that word you 've probably heard that. I remember I was going through Hebrew intensive Hebrew training, I guess in uh, Austin. We had these shirts up it was and if you remember where I went to seminary i was it was in Texas. So we had these, uh, it was in Hebrew, and it said, Shalom, y'all. But it was in Hebrew characters, you know. Shalom, y'all. So actually, I say to you, Shalom, all y'all. Uh, so, because I'm including everybody. But Shalom is more, it, we, we, lots of time it gets just translated to peace. But there's more to it than that. And this is just a greeting, I realize that. We do that too, right? Have you ever had this happen? You say, well, well, hi, how you doing? And then they start telling you how they are. And you're like, well, I didn't mean that. I was just saying Hi. I don't know how you are, you know. <laughs> Hopefully we don't do that, but sometimes we do that, you know. I had a friend in seminary that would always say, hey, what's going on? That was his way to greet. And I'm like, well, you don't know what's going on, or are you are just kind of blowing smoke here, bud? Um, and so, but I think this is more meaning. that shalom is, is it, it, the root word actually has a, it's like completeness, contentment. It's more than just peace. It's, it's got this Yahweh character to it. Because you think about what's going on here. He's not just saying, I hope you have, all, hope you have a good day. I mean, peace to you. Well, who's going to give us ultimate peace? You know, there's a, I think there's a lot more going on here with that. But you see this in the Old Testament. You see it in Judges. The Lord says to Gideon, if you remember the Gideon story, he's kind of being wimpy down by the threshing floor. He doesn't want to go out. And he said, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. I don't know. Maybe the last part was more helpful than the first. Uh, but again, that greeting—you see this with uh, in—you in, know, David says, "says Say to the man, say to Nabal, peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace to all that you have," which is kind of what's inferred there. It's a, it's a, its more than supposed to be more than just a greeting, but it would be something that would be very comforting to them because why are they in? They—they lock the doors. I remember moving to Dennis, and I didn't lock my doors until somebody stole some stuff from a house, a couple of houses down. And all of a sudden, we got locks. I think we call that wisdom. <laughs> but, but for, you know, yeah, we just didn't lock the door. And it's like, you don't have to raise your hand because uh, I don't want people to see it. But I'm sure there's some of you who don't lock your doors. Uh, you lock doors when you're worried about somebody getting in that you don't want in, right? They're, they're fearful. They're fearful of the odiac. They killed Jesus. Who's next? They know they killed John the Baptist earlier. So we've got, he needs to get these. So this, this Shalom Alakim, I think, has got a lot going on. He wants to them to know this is me and I've taken care of things. I'm not dead anymore. I mean, this is really cool. The resurrection is neat at all kinds of levels. He wants to put their fears to rest by showing them that this is indeed him. And that's what the Gospels are trying to do. We had that last week, all these supposed theories of the empty tomb, you know, why it could happen, you know, that he wasn't really dead, that he just looked like he was dead, that there was a twin, there was a replacement, that all kinds of different things. You know, just logically the best inference to the most likely cause is that Jesus rose. And he's trying to show this is really me. This is not somebody else. He's trying to get them. This is the one that taught you. This is the one that died. And I think you look at his greetings and his actions where he's saying, Shalom, Alakim. The Father sent me, but now I'm sending you. He's starting to show them the plan. And I don't think we'd probably come up with this plan. Uh, If you sat in there, if we had a meeting, which churches tend to do, and we all sat down and God said, well, figure out what you want to do. We got Jesus here, resurrected Jesus. You want to keep him? keep going with him? Or you want him to leave and you you guys do it? How many of us are going to pick B? I don't know if I'd pick B, but God picked B. Now, obviously by the power of the Spirit, and we'll talk about that. But yes, it's the crucified Jesus standing before him, but he's giving them their commission. We get this more overtly in Acts 1 when he ascends. He's getting them to do the things uh, that he's been training them for since he first said, follow me. This is the, the final. Because you think about back with them. What do they think? Do they, they probably don't understand. They didn't understand the crucifixion, right? But then that happened. They're starting to understand that. They didn't understand the resurrection. That happened. They're starting to understand that. There's still one more thing that Jesus does as far as a big thing is ascend. Maybe they didn't think that was going to happen. So he's trying to prepare. I'm going to send you out. To do these things. So Jesus' words and actions here, we got to remember the big picture of what John's trying to do, all the Gospels, but certainly John. we got to remember that Jesus, the Good Shepherd, has come to restore, unite, and heal Israel by setting up a new leadership to replace the old, and this is what he's doing here. These EODI the we've been talking about that think they're the leader of Yahweh's people, no, it's these guys. These guys are going to start the church. He's going to, and we have this clearly in the Good Shepherd. When we went through John 10, I am the Good Shepherd. We hear that. That's cool. We might think of Psalm 23, but we should think of Exodus 34. Excuse me, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel has a lot of stuff in it that John uses. We're going to use him a little bit here toward the end. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 34, what Yahweh comes to Ezekiel and, and speaks through him and says, you guys, you leaders, you shepherds are not doing what I've told you to You're not following what I told you to follow. And I have given you plenty of chances. You remember, but this time they're already in exile. So I am going to come myself and I will shepherd the people. And then Jesus comes in John 10 and says, I am the good shepherd. They understood what he was saying. He's saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm going to come and shepherd my own people. And he's going to set up his own leadership. I mean, this is one of the reasons they killed him, right? If he'd have come in and said, oh, you guys, you know, you're annoying, you're not following everything, but well, I'm just going to kind of change some things. We just got a little bit of a systemic problem. We'll get you back on that. No, I, you guys are done. You're gone. I'm bringing in new leadership. And this is what he's doing. But he also does something really interesting in verse 22. He breathes on them. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, you probably don't grab this quite as much in English, but it's interesting. Both in Hebrew and Greek, the word for breath, the word for wind, and the word for spirit is the same word. How do you know the difference? Context. You know, you probably wouldn't walk out and say, boy, that spirit is sure strong. But you would say wind because you know, but the word in Hebrew is a spitting word. So I do apologize to people in the front row, but... It's Ruach. That Ruach was there at the beginning. In the beginning, God hovered and the Spirit hovered over. That's the Ruach. Ruach was there and involved in the creation too. So he's, he's breathing on them. It's cool because he's in, in, in Greek it's pneumata, but he's breathing on them, receive the Holy Spirit. So who's given the Holy Spirit? Jesus is. In the in the Old Testament, it says Yahweh gives the spirit. So, who's Jesus? <laughs> Just keep getting that, don't we? In these texts, that's out there a lot, folks, and that's why you have to hit it. There's a lot of, well, non-Christian, I would say, sex out there, and even in uh, Jesus' deity is is a lot of times belittled, and up and we say, well, yes, he's human, and surely yes, he was, and that, but he was also God, and we have to remember that. So why does he breathe on them? Well, because the task that they're going to do is not possible without the Holy Spirit. You know, you can get on your bulletin, you can see our statement of faith back there, you can look at our, we're supposed to make disciples of people, you know, teach each other to to believe and, and follow Jesus. None of this can we do without the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you can call yourself saved, saying that I am at peace with God, I have shalom with God, if you want to put it that way, I accepted the grace through my faith. The only way you could say that is because of the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is the key. We'll see that. We saw that clearly in John 3. We'll hit that in a little bit. So this is what he's doing. He's breathing on them. He's, now, this is going to ha- happen more later. The coming of the Spirit of God and power, and you see that very much like today with this rushing wind. If you read Acts 2, It's sometimes hard to know how to translate that. Is this the rushing spirit or the rushing wind? Yes. But the power is there. This doesn't happen to Shabbat, you know, the festival of weeks, Pentecost. But John's telling us before this happens that we're, that Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit and he gives them something. They're newly created. They can now do this. You know, you wonder if they ask him then, do you guys understand the crucifixion now a little bit better? They might. Do you understand this is not about you? They might. And sometimes in our own lives we we might talk to somebody about our faith and tell them that this is why I believe and you can give them evidence from the Bible and all kinds of things, but ultimately there's this inner witness of the Holy Spirit that's a little hard to explain. It's not over and against the evidence of the Bible. It it supplements it and helps it, but it's real. You know, sometimes people, well, how, how do you still believe? It's like, well, how could you do any other? And that's where you want to get. That's what these guys needed. They didn't have that yet. And when you talk to them, they may look at you, a non-Christian, may not not understand. And I think it's a little bit like these disciples. We've talked about that before. How many times did he say he was going to die, but yet they didn't get it? Why? Because they didn't have the Spirit. They couldn't completely understand the important things. And that's what he's kind of starting up here. Now, you think about it. How did Adam and Eve become living beings? Ruach. <laughs> Spit. Ezekiel, if you remember this, a little bit later, Ezekiel, you probably heard of the Valley of the Dry Bones. That sounds like a pretty good song. Is there a song like that? I don't know. We'll look it up. You have these dead bones, and Ezekiel is told to prophesy, give them the words of Yahweh, and they say st- sinews come on and be an interesting movie uh, to see all this be a lot better than those stupid zombie movies out there i still don't get it if you're undead uh, if, if you're uh, how could you be undead it doesn't make any sense i think the undead movies are made for the unsmart i really do i think they're <laughs> no, if you enjoy them go for it i guess but but the undead wouldn't that be living i, I thought i was undead but what do i know um I can't figure that out. But this was, these people are dead. It's a metaphor. But you think about that. The wind comes. Again, when you're reading, they you almost wonder if we should translate that spirit. And it comes. It's, it's a picture of what happens in a soul, a dead soul, when the spirit comes in. And it doesn't take any effort on all part other than to say, I, I, I repent and I want to follow you. You know, that's in, in the background here. Jesus is breathing in the apostles in a different way. He's, I don't know if this is the time we could say they were saved now. I think that might have already happened. But now they have what they need to do what God told them. And you have to have this. That You think, well, why do we get the Spirit? To make us get through tough times. Yeah, I think that's one thing. To help us understand Scripture. Yep, yeah, I think so. To comfort us, to be beside us, but to guide us into what we are to do for him and to help us do the things that we're commanded to do. You know, it used to be, and they're still out there, I, I don't watch new movies as much, but you've got that little, the dude with the little wings on one side that tells you to not do it, and the dude with the little horns on the other side. You know, they're usually really small, and they look just like the person. Well, the dude with the wings, as a metaphor, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. He will convict us of our guilt and point us to Christ. You know? And the thing is, different than the movies where it's like, don't do that. Because you always say it really high because of really little. It's why don't do that? Well, we've had that. You had that in John 14, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. Don't do it because we, sometimes Christians do that. I can't do this because I'm a Christian. I really wish I could. You know, it's not the way we do it. You know, it's like, when do we get to the point when it, it, and you do that with worship too? Did you come today because you had to worship or did you come today because you wanted to worship? And if you can get to that second one, now we got something going. Did you serve God and, and, and want to follow his commandments because you love him or because you don't want to get thrown in hell? You know, second one's not horrible, to, but it's not the main thing. So that's what he's doing here. He's, 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 it's, I don't think this is salvation receiving of the Spirit. It's a giving them uh, the ability to do what, what God has told them, an obedience way. And if we try to be obedient without the power of the Spirit, we've got no way to do it. And one of the main ways he does that is remind you. What do you think he reminds you of? He reminds you of the books he wrote. So read them, know them. It's hard to remind people of things they never read. So he gives them authority, too. and And we've got some denominations that take this in a way that I don't think the text does. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If we withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, I suppose you can interpret this in different ways. But what you really have to do is how did it work out in Acts? Did you have these guys running around and say, hey, you, forgiven? You, nope, don't like you and just kind of willy-nilly handing stuff out and having booths there come in. I'm sorry, okay, you're going to heaven. I mean, no. What did they do? What does Peter do when he gets the Spirit? He preaches. What's he preach? The gospel. So I think that's the key here. Their proclamation of the true gospel is what they're doing. So if you're truly telling somebody the gospel that in the normal course of your life, you are an enmity with God, You have committed crimes against Him, and you need to repent. That's the way Jesus started it. You need to repent of what you did, and remember that God has given you the pardon through the cross, and you can be washed clean and blameless before Him. You know, that's what they told you. You get that in Acts like 25 times from Peter, Paul, and others. Stephen talks about it. Philip talks about They didn't just say, "Oh, sends you forget." No, it's the gospel they're talking about here. So taking this in a different way is kind of weird, in my opinion. And the the promises to all of these guys, and I think by extension, it's to all of us if we're truly proclaiming the gospel, the true gospel. Because nowhere in here, if this would be the only place, and maybe in in Matthew sixteen where there's a similar sentence, this would be the only place that you could actually say that a person would have the power to forgive sins, I don't think that's what it's talking about, folks. What's the problem with that? What if I had the power? Because I'm approximately two foot above you guys, which makes me more important. I don't know if you knew that. And I got a mic. I'm really important. Um, and humble. I'm going to get a shirt that says I'm humble. it would be pretty cool. But, you know, if I ha- I don't know your heart. I mean, you think about that. If somebody would come into to someone and say, well, I have, I've, I've sinned and I want to be forgiven, who knows their heart? Maybe they do, but I don't know it. Spirit knows it. You're truly forgiven. It's a promise we always get. You're truly forgiven if you're truly repentant. But it's not up to us to decide whether you're truly repentant. On the other hand, somebody could look unrepentant to me because I'm not 100% discerning, but yet their heart really is for God. Why don't we let God take care of the repentance and the forgiveness and not act like we know? We tell them the information. And we can tell them, if you repent, you are forgiven. And I think that's why proclaim the gospel and the Holy Spirit will work. This is the way he decided to do it. And we also see the verbs are passive, meaning that the active agent is not the disciples. The active agent here is God. So God's still doing it. But that's it. Remember what Jesus is going to say in Acts 1. You guys go out and be my witnesses to the whole world. Well, how are we going to do that, Jesus? You proclaim the gospel. You teach people what I taught you. And the Spirit will work through that, and he will change the hearts. And we see that, remember, back in John 3. You've got that. It starts out, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless they're born from above. And then later he goes into to, to John 3, 5. Because can, you can't really respond if you don't have the Spirit. You ever think about that? You ever think about, you know, you got somebody who comes into a a church or a a meeting that's talking about the gospel and let's say neither one of them believe. Let's even make them twins. So a same background. And one of them, when we say go to room D. <laughs> <laughs> if you think the Spirit's were you know, Jesus is working, go back and talk to an elder and, and one of them goes back there hearing the same exact message and singing the same songs and another one doesn't. Why? Well, it, maybe it's a little bit of them, but it's mostly because the Spirit is working on the heart of the one and he's not working. And we can't do anything about that. I suppose we all pray for people in our families that aren't believers and what do we pray for? We pray that they'll be receptive, that they'll realize they're guilty before a holy God and accept the grace and have peace with Him. But we can't make it happen. Only the Spirit can do that. Those who don't respond obviously are left in their sins. You see this in John 3, 5. Jesus answered, because Nicodemus a little bit clueless there, how can I enter into my mother's womb again? He doesn't get the spiritual connotation of this. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And people have looked at this, and what does this mean? Well, it's just right out of Ezekiel 36. I know what it means. Who's doing the burning again here? The Spirit. So these are metaphors. The water metaphor is a metaphor for the Spirit. My opinion has zero to do with baptism. And why do I think that? Let's read Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water Water on you, this is Yahweh talking, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. That's the first part of what Jesus is summarizing to Nicodemus, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. That's the second part he's talking about and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you give you a heart of flesh, meaning open you know remember hardened heart doesn't get the spirit soft heart does. And so you'll you'll be essentially a follower of Yahweh. So what am I supposed to do then? And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Obedience, it's there every time. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is what Jesus is talking about, the spirit working in the hearts of people. And it's not about us doing some sort of ceremony to save you. We can't, ceremony doesn't save you. It didn't back then, it doesn't now. It's true faith that saves us. And it's pretty clear. I mean, you, read those, you look at those two together, this is really easy. You will understand the New Testament better if you've read the Old. Now, the beauty we have is we have these beautiful things called study Bibles. And any good study Bible should have a reference to Ezekiel 36 from John 3. So let's, we get one more. Meanwhile, back in the upper room, Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, we kind of think, that's a long time in this case. Because all the appearances up to this day have all been on the first day. So this is what we call post-mortem appearance number six. It's the sixth time Jesus has appeared to someone as far as we know from the gospel accounts. Eight days later, which includes Thomas. So this one that he breathed on him, Thomas wasn't there. He w- and where was he on day one? One wonders. The text doesn't say. I'm like, did they send him out to get the food? They should have done the Grubhub thing, right? Just bring it to your house. And done delivery. And we don't know. I mean, obviously God knew. And it had to be a little hard. You know, Thomas indicates he needs to experience the resurrected Jesus with his own eyes to believe that he has risen. And what we do in the history of this text is throw him under the bus and rake him through the coals. And it's like, wouldn't you do the same thing? There's probably more a lot going on here than just doubting. Think about this. Thomas was the only apostle that Jesus hadn't appeared to yet. I don't ask this much, but I want you to think about this. How would that make you feel? And it wasn't just like he, he showed up a couple day or, you know, a couple hours later. It was eight days. You know, I've I've heard sermons, you know, what did Judas think from the time that he betrayed to the time that he decided to take his life? What was Peter thinking from the time he denied until we'll get chapter 21 after Easter and getting reinstated by Jesus? What do you think Thomas thought from the time he appeared to everyone else and he didn't appear to me? The text really doesn't say. It seems like Thomas is more concerned of doubting that maybe they really saw him. And that's one of the other things that's there. You want another uh, supposed reason for the empty tomb is hallucination. A lot of hallucinations, but they're out there. And again, I suppose that's possible. It's not probable. Because these guys, when they start teaching and writing, they don't look like a bunch of dodos. Um, They seem very lucid and very precise and clear in what they're talking about. So it seems to me his core doubt was the words of his compatriots, although he obviously questioned Jesus' prediction that he was going to rise again, but so did the rest of them. So Thomas, what do you do with him? I guess you just do with what the text does. You just notice that, you know, pretty much... All he wanted is what they had. really wasn't asking for extra. You know, I suppose maybe a little. He wants to put his hands and He wants to be really sure. But really, he pretty much is saying, I want to have what you guys had. And I think that's the way you want to couch this. Because this is a contemporary problem, too. When we tell somebody about the gospel, don't make it that they have to come to it the same way you did. They have to have the same experience you did. Everybody's different. Some people can come, like, think of Paul. That's an interesting experience. Jesus appears to him, knocks him on the ground, blinds him for a couple days. That's not typical, folks. And you don't have to have that same experience. I mean, it's interesting, to, and I know some of your kind of faith experiences. You know, mine was more intellectual than it was. It became very... You know, heart too, but it started with what we call apologetics. I started thinking, this, start, this stuff makes sense. It wasn't just that, I realized that, but everybody's coming to the Lord is different because everybody's different. Um, so don't make your method of coming somehow the way everybody else has to do it. I think that's what Thomas is doing here. I want just what they had. Well, Jesus gives him what he needs. Notice he. He says, "Put your finger here." I suppose he's going like this. Uh, See my hands. Put your put your hand. Put it put it here. You know, we do this. Usually, war war guys do this. It's like, look at this scar. Look at this here, the barbed wire thing. You know, because if you're really messed up on your body, you're really manly. That's how it works. I think that's probably true. But he's not. He's this is really me. And he gives him. And I, if you look at this, it just says, "Don't." Disbelieve, but believe. If you look at it, really the way it is in Greek, it's cease from becoming an unfaithful one and trust me. It's really, you're going down the path of not believing in me because you're not getting what you want. And that's part of the problem now. If somebody tells you to come to Jesus because you'll get you what you want, that's not the gospel. You'll get what you need. And as we grow in dis- as, as disciples and understand the word better, Pretty soon, what we want is also what we need. That's that's the key, isn't it, of being a true disciple, when our desires line up with God's, And then as the Proverbs said, we will get those desires because they line up with what he wants. So he just wants the same evidence. He gets the same evidence. But you get this line, blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Why do you think he said that? I think he said it because that's the way it's most going to be for most of us. Jesus appearing to people and showing that he really is not the normal method of becoming a believer. I've never seen Jesus. Only on TV. I mean, you don't need it. The Holy Spirit, the Word gives it to us, and I think that's key. And then look at this statement of faith here. This is a good one to use if you have the... Uh, so how how to what adjective should i use the persistent uh jehovah witnesses come to your door look what he says my lord and my god there is no way you get around this sucker cuz they don't think he's deity did jesus say oh don't call me that <laughs> he just accepts it cuz it's true so Thomas, in my opinion, Jesus waited because he wanted Thomas to really have a deep faith. And at this point, I think Thomas's faith is probably way above everybody else's. Because not only does he know Jesus is the Messiah, not only does he know Jesus is Lord, not only does he know that Jesus is resurrected, he knows Jesus is God. Wow, that might be why he got this. So I think, you know, and we've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. And I'll correct you, I'm correct,s not the right word. I'll be annoying to you if you call him doubting Thomas. He's trusting Thomas. Are we, do you want to be known for one failure in your life? You know? Do you want to call, you know, past dropper Brian? No, I want to be remembered for the ones I caught, not the ones I dropped. <laughs> That's what we should do for him. So what about today as we end up here? Does Jesus promise to appear to anyone who asks him? That's never in the Bible. That, that's something you can get. That's up to him. I would not. It, how do we believe? He actually had a better plan. We had this way back in John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you, this is in the upper room to the, to the 11. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin so they have to repent, and righteousness and judgment, realizing we get Jesus' righteousness if we have faith. So this is the better way, even though we probably wouldn't have picked it. And so to finish up, look at these last couple verses, and we maybe hit these a little bit uh, in the future. This is kind of a purpose-of-the-book statement. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believe, believing you will have life in his name. These are evidence. Jesus says these are true. I tell you they are true. Now whether you believe it is up to you. And that's the idea. How do I believe? By the power of the Spirit and the evidence of his word is the normal way people come to faith. And we get to be. Part of that as his followers let us pray father as we continue through this gospel such wonderful things that you've done you always had the plan it's perfect just because we don't completely understand it or maybe in some cases don't like it doesn't mean it's not what we need to follow May each one of us want to have the desire to know you better through the power of your spirit which means being in your word worshiping praying and serving with other Christians as much as we can. May we be obedient to you, showing our love to you. Amen.